The spirit of performance is what defines Acura. And now, it's electric. Introducing the ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. And we are back. Episode 2 of the Pure Hoops podcast. I'm your co-host, Eric Newman, along with the one and only B.J. Armstrong. Today, we will dig back into the incredible scoring streak of James Harden, another Boston-LA rivalry, and of course, unfortunately, a serious injury for the Indiana Pacers. B.J., how's everything on your end? Eric, everything is great, and uh, you know we're, we're sending our regards and really thinking of uh, Victor Oladipo. He's one of the great young kids you know obviously he's a wonderful basketball player but he's a great kid and so it's, uh, from here at pure hoops we're thinking about him in a speedy recovery lots to dig into it's time to check ball let's go the pure hoops podcast is a presentation of pure hoops media the pure hoops podcast most definitely does reflect the views of our management Here's three-time NBA champ B.J. Armstrong and Eric Newman. The Pure Hoops podcast is brought to you by Pure Hoops Media, your new basketball community. Our weekly podcasts are simply dope. Besides this show, the Pure Hoops podcast with B.J. Armstrong and yours truly, Eric Newman, we present the Wise-Ass Show featuring Mike Wise, which drops every Monday. Our midweek show is Catch and Shoot with Noah Kozlov and Adam Stanko. That show drops every Wednesday. Mike's guests have included Jamal Crawford and Garrett Temple, who had some special stories on Martin Luther King Day. After you finish this show, check out The Wise Ass Show wherever you get your podcasts. Please subscribe, rate us, and tell your friends. They'll thank you, and so will we. Pure Hoops Podcast, we are back. BJ, first off, thank you for uh, your gracious LA hospitality last week for our first show. There was nothing like sitting with you in person in your uh, rather fantastic office, and uh, <laughs> it was uh, it was great to be face to face, my man, for our first one. Great that you could come out, get a little warm weather, and uh, it's always good. And LA is uh, we we like to entertain out here. Here is a pure take. It was uh, it was quite a surreal week between being able to sit with you, uh, some work I was fortunate enough to be able to do on the resurgence to Marcus Cousins film, and of course see his return to the court, and uh, never a dull moment. And and one of the things that we talked about a lot last week was this James Harden scoring binge that he has been on, and just when you think maybe he was going to show that he's human. Last night, on the holy grounds of Madison Square Garden, he ties Kobe Bryant's road scoring record with 61 points, none of which, I repeat, none of which unassisted at the Garden. What's your reaction to that performance and how this is just continuing to happen? Well, my immediate response while watching that game last night was how do you score 61 points and they're all unassisted? I thought that was incredible. Um, You know, the NBA has changed 
And when I say change, it's 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 a high powered uh, game now based on you know pace and spacing of the game, as they like to say. It's a common term that's thrown around the league. And to watch the offense where you basically have one player who's playing isolation basketball, and clearly he is a phenomenal uh, offensive player. To watch this is it's it's kind of unique, and uh, the way they play. Their shot selection, um, you know, they when you when you watch the Houston Rockets, they basically do three things: they they shoot threes, they drive all the way to the basket for layups, and they get fouled, and um, so that's basically the way they play, the way they approach the game, and the way their offense is set up. And to watch, you know, I, I was watching the game, and I was like, what would that be like to watch someone score sixty-one points? And they're all unassisted, so basically it's just isol- isolation basketball, and it's a it's a it's a rather unique style, um, but it's a style now that it's come kind of in vogue with the way the NBA is played today, and um, you know it was a uh, it was quite an offensive show, a display of offense by James Harden, and he's he's really on a roll right now. BJ, let me ask you something. And we, talk, we talked about this streak on our previous show. We, we tied some things to, uh, to Michael Jordan in a way. Um, with Chris Paul out, with Clint Capella out, I know Gordon just getting back into a rhythm. Is it at the point now where these guys, his teammates, are, are his, his teammates, are they standing around? Are they skittish? Does he have to be this ball dominant? What are you seeing out there in terms of a guy that's played with the dominant scorer, that's watched the league for a long time? Is this the only way they can win, or is Harden just so locked in right now that this just makes total sense? Well, I think offensively, uh, this team has really zeroed in on figuring out what is the best way from for them to win the game. And... They don't have a lot of options. They don't have a lot of players who offensively you would consider great offensive players or offensive threats. Um, Their offense is basically let's shoot threes, and we have our one player who we're going to demand makes the right play when he creates penetration. And penetration is one of the – principles of a sound offense and their first option is the form of penetration which is to shoot the basketball that's a form of penetration so um you can you know you have three ways to you know create that you know create penetration in the principle in in the principles of a sound offense you can do it with the shot which the rockets do Uh, you can do it with the dribble by attacking the basket, a la, let's say, Russell Westbrook or Derrick Rose, who are constantly – or you can do it with the pass where you pass into the post and then you play from the post area as a form of penetration. The Rockets have chosen to use penetration in their offensive scheme with the shot. They're going shot. Is this their first option, second option, third option? And then they mostly penetrate when they go in transition. So when you play the Rockets, you have to take away the initial – thrust of their offense, which is to get out and run and penetrate. And then you have to guard them at the three-point line because they will shoot 50, 60, 70 threes if allowed. So it's a unique way to defend because normally you defend from the inside out. 
now you have to defend from the outside in because they're not really concerned about getting two. So I think it's just when you see them maybe once or twice a, twice a year like the New York Knicks, it's kind of an odd way to play or an odd way to defend. Um, but I think you will get used to it if you see them more, especially in a seven-game series where you can actually focus in and zero in on them. But to watch James Harden right now and to answer your question, I think is he's been sensational. But I think this in their thought process right now with the injuries and the way that they that they play and they would rather play um, or they prefer to play, I should say, I think they feel that this gives them the best chance because offensively he is a threat every time he has the ball in his hands. Great point on the Knicks being an Eastern Conference team, only seeing them play twice a year. Obviously, defensive principles are ingrained in these guys from, well, you'd like to think starting in, in, in high school up through college and the pros, and they're surely not taught how to defend like this, whether it's individually or team defense. So, you know, as our show will be dropping on Friday, the Rockets will be visiting the Toronto Raptors, obviously a high-level uh, defensive team, with some high-level individual perimeter defenders. If you're the Raptors Friday night, you're obviously going to take this on as a challenge. Kawhi Leonard will be back in the lineup. BJ, you're the Raptors. What's your game plan against Harden Friday night? Well, you know, um, you know, I'm, I'm from a different era. So watching this style of play, I've seen this style many times, right? I, whether it was... Paul Westhead, you know, when he was playing, I saw this with, you know, Dan Nissel and the Nuggets. They used to play very fast. Showtime, you know, playing fast is nothing new. Um, but one thing that surprises me, um, but again, I played in a different era, is the your best defense is your offense. And when we would play teams who would prefer to play at a faster pace is what you do is you make them defend on the other end. Um, you know, playing defense requires effort and energy. So I don't think it's in my best interest if I was playing the Houston Rockets is to take the first available shot. They're not very interested in defense, as we all know. So why am I going to let them off the hook? I'm going to force them. In particular, I'm going to force James Harden to defend. I'm not going to allow him to play against what I call a non-threat player. So I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to constantly keep five players on the floor who can score, and I'm going to make James Harden defend. Uh, I'm just not going to allow him to, you know, be a defensive help guy uh, by playing against me, and I'm going to make sure that I play 13, 14, 15 seconds on the shot clock every time down so that I can dictate um, the, uh, the pace of the game. But – Easier said than done. I think everyone gets caught up in what they do well, but I certainly think that the Rockets probably do it as well or as better than anyone in the league because that's the pace that they want to play. And they've, you know, and clearly they've committed to saying, we'll shoot and make more threes than you will if you want to get in this contest. So I wouldn't even go there. I would force James Harden to defend. I would screen him and run him off as many screens as I can and then take my chances on dictating the game by playing more of a playoff style basketball versus the Rockets than getting into a, you know, who can make more threes because I think they do it probably better than anyone else in the league right now. Uh, even better than the, the even better than the uh, than the Warriors and the Warriors have 
two of the greatest uh, shooters to ever play. Um, well, you got to put Durant in there as well. So they got three of the top, you know, guys to you never know, shoot it and score it. But I don't think you want to get into that match with the with the Rockets. No, no, not and the Warriors. Obviously, uh, a terrific, uh, a, a terrific cutting team and passing team. So while they do knock out threes, as we both know, they play some some beautiful basketball regarding movement. I, I think Toronto obviously has a lot of interesting weapons to go to against Houston. It starts with Kawhi. Uh, they run some effective pick, effective pick and roll, obviously. Uh, Kawhi in the post, the emergence of Pascal Siakam, and um, Toronto sitting at um, second place in the East right now. The team that was right behind them, or still is right behind them, that beat them on Wednesday night, but sustained a a really just terrible injury that we touched on in the open. Victor Oladipo with a ruptured quadricep, lost for the season. Him and the Pacers have been such a great story this season, coached so well by Nate McMillan. McMillan, excuse me, the emergence of uh, Sabonis, Turner showing signs of becoming a, a, a potentially very strong big man in this league, along with just contributions across the board. BJ, when you see an injury like this to a guy like Oladipo, I mean, how deflating is this for him and the team right now? It really is, and you never like to see anyone go down with an injury, any player, and uh, your health is everything as a player, and, you know, so when I saw the injury, I happened to be watching the game last night, you know, just, it's just, it's just devastating, especially for these young players, and you know how much they love to play, and they want to play, and, but injuries are a part of the game, so, um, you know, I think it's important for him to, you know, take care of what needs to be taken care of, get the surgery, and then, you know, really begin the process of the rehabilitation process of getting you back, getting your health back as quickly as you can. But more importantly, making sure that he has the right support and people around him because those are those are very tough. Those are very, very tough to be out, season injury, season ending injury, and then trying to get yourself to back playing at the level that you know you can. So let's hope for a speedy recovery for him. And then, you know, allow him to get back under, get his feet back under him and uh, get back out there on the court as quick as he quick as he possibly can, because he was having another great season and uh, he is really, really beginning to play with a consistency year in and year out as, at, a, at a very high level. And, uh, you know, he's a terrific young man. Yeah, I mean, clearly he was on his way to the All-Star game. My question for you is with the likes of Bogdanovich, Collison, Evans, and obviously I mentioned um, Sabonis and Turner before, the style in which they play, very hard on both ends, terrific team defense. Can they sustain? Can, can they stay in the thick of the playoff race in the Eastern Conference? Well, I do. I think they have enough veterans. Uh, you know, Sabonis... And, you know, Tyreek Evans is a very capable scorer, you know, Turner. So they'll have – clearly they'll have to make some adjustments. Nate McMillan, you know, knowing Nate, he's going to have next man up type of mentality that he's going to make sure that those guys understand, yeah, we're going to miss a great player, great talent like Victor, but we got to find a way. There's another game coming. You know, the one thing in the NBA that we learned, and I, and I remember when Jordan retired, is that the games keep coming. And they come very quickly. So you don't have much time, if any, to feel sorry for yourself. And uh, clearly 
the faster you can understand that and learn that lesson and move on, the better you will be long term. So, yes, that is a big blow for their team, for their organization. But they'll have another game and they got to get themselves going and they have to pick themselves up because no one's going to feel sorry for sorry for you in this league. And, you know, last night was an indication that I think, you know, Coach McMillan is going to push them and continue to coach to win games. And uh, that was a good win for them last night. And uh, and it took a little air out of their sails, obviously, with the injury that took place. But they were able to play through it, put that behind them and continue to move forward. Now that's a pure take. So as we are in January and All-Star break is rapidly approaching, that also means major college basketball conference play has begun. Obviously, mock drafts never end, and everyone is high on a few prospects. Zion Williamson of Duke, obviously one of them. BJ, what I'd like to get your viewpoint on, both now in the NBA, teams currently at the bottom of the standings, and in general, what's your take on tanking? And is Zion Williamson the clear guy who's going to go number one in this year's draft? Well, you know, the tanking has been an interesting concept that has been talked about, thrown around in the media, and there's been many, you know, opinions and, you know, and of what, what you know, what is tanking? And people have asked me, what do I think about tanking? I think, like I've always said, you know, the, this league is, 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 is a league where everyone's trying to figure out the best way to have long-term sustainability in this in this league and what I mean by that is if you're going to build a team you're going to have to figure out not only to get those players and draft those players but you have to figure out how to retain those players and the best way to build a team is through the draft you know if you if you understand the salary cap and the salary structure you know trying to build now through free agency is almost impossible to build a team with any type of any type of long-term sustainability. So if you look at what tanking is for what it is, if you're going to have a team and you're going to be able to do it and compete long-term, right, year in and year out, you have to do it through the draft. So I get it. Now, in saying that, that puts a lot of pressure for the executives and the people who are looking at this as a method to build their team, which I clearly understand, um, are those players that we're talking about, you know, is that the player that actually is going to reach, go from potential to actual player? Now, that's another conversation, right? (laughs) Just because you have the number one pick in the draft doesn't mean that that player is going to deliver on what the the number one pick or what we think a number one pick should be. The best players in our league traditionally have been drafted all in the lottery. So what you're basically saying when I hear the word tanking is I'm just going to take a a guess. I don't really want to take the responsibility of who this player is or or who this player is going to become. I'm just going to say the best players are here 1 through 14, and I'm going to take my chances and say, hopefully I'll get one and they'll develop however they develop. So I understand the concept of tanking because th- that is, that's the facts of the league. How else are you going to build a team yeah. if you don't do it you through the draft? As you've okay, told me a, before, you, you as you've told me before, 
the last place you want to be in the middle is in the middle, right? So is it, absolutely. So now the real pressure, if you will, is on evaluating talent. That's the real pressure because I was talking to a coach just yesterday, and the one thing about the Warriors, if you look at their team and how, how it's built, is the Warriors have an unfair advantage. All these other teams are drafting these kids one-and-done players, right, which is fine. The Warriors, you know, Steph Curry went to school, what, three, four years? Okay, he went to school for three years. Yep. Clay Thompson went to school for, what, two years? Draymond Green went to school for four years. Yep. Okay. So now you're drafting these kids who go to college for six months or a year. So now, you know, Steph Curry and these guys didn't start winning to what, three, four years into their career? Somewhere around there? Yep. So you're looking at like a minimum of a five or six year window <laughs> that we're talking about here. A lot of experience. We're drafting these kids. A lot of seasoning. Kids. We're draft yeah, we're, we're drafting these kids in year one, and then we're waiting five years later, which no one gets to the five years later. Okay? Yep. We must remember that Michael Jordan went to school for three years. Then it took him like seven or eight years before he actually won a championship. So now you have a 11-year window before you're actually able to deliver on the promise. This league is about performance and delivering. That's all this league is about, you know? <laughs> and we want the patience, but we just want it right now. And we're asking these kids, whether it's, you know, your Zion or whomever, when are they going to deliver? How long is this going to take? Because coaches don't have five, six, seven, eight right. years. The coaches, to, the to coaches are the first players. ones to be the victims of impatience, right? So and let me ask the you. Executives and then. So, yeah, so let me so ask that's, you. That's, is, that's what I think about it. Is, is Zion this generational talent that we knew Tim Duncan was? Because for every Tim Duncan, unfortunately, it seems like there's an Anthony Bennett situation. So obviously, Zion Williamson has the athletic ability. He's playing at Duke. He seems to be uh, a, a, a smart, intense big-time prospect. He's being mentored in the right way. He's got some shades of Larry Johnson with the explosion at the front court position among some other players. Is he a generational talent, or is he one of those kids who's got a whole lot of potential, but we've still got to wait and see because now he's playing, again, college basketball, and we've talked about this as well, this is not the college basketball that you played in. This is not the college basketball that Michael Jordan played in or Tim Duncan played in or even in the early 2000s. He's playing against a lot of 18, 19, maybe 20-year-olds, but not a lot of 21- and 22-year-old grown men. So where is Zion Williamson? High talent prospect or generational talent? You know, we... we, we you know, being over 50 now, I, I'm, I'm very careful to throw around terms like greatness or he's going to be a great player. I'm very careful to throw around terms a generational player. The reason they're generational players is because, you know, they come around, you know, Jordans and Tim Duncans and those guys don't come around often, okay? Kareem Abdul-Jabbar's and 
Larry Birds and Magic. They just don't come around often. So when you see them, I didn't ask. I remember as a kid, I remember when I saw Magic Johnson for the first time, I didn't ask whether or not was he going to be a great player. I was like, that is a great player. When I saw Jordan, it didn't take me but about two seconds to see that he was going to be <laughs> Jordan. All right? Yep. When I started asking myself, then that's probably an indication of what it is. Right? I, I, remember, I remember watching LeBron James play as a freshman in high school. I saw him play. I didn't ask myself what he could be. I was like, okay, that kid right there is a special talent. Now, it's unfair for Zion because Zion is still, no matter what he's playing or what he's doing in these first 20 games that he's playing at Duke or what have you, which one of us are going to take responsibility to say, in 20 games, I knew Michael Jordan was going to become Michael Jordan? I didn't I – didn't, I, I, who, who has that ability to do that, okay? What you did see was a talent or something that you hadn't seen before. That's a generational player, okay? Um, so I think it's unfair for me to say what I think Zion is going to be because Zion doesn't have what – I or any of the other players that I've seen have when they, for the most part, when they came into this league, they, they had experience. Now there are exceptions to the rule, right? I mean, LeBron James was a kid that came straight out of high school. He had no experience, but you saw the athleticism that was just so overpowering and he was doing it as a point guard. LeBron James was doing that as a point guard in this league. Unlike Zion. Um, I saw Kobe Bryant, uh, as a high school kid, and I thought, wow, you know, here was a kid that was doing things and scoring, and his fundamental base was so impressive as a young player, which you don't see often, that I didn't ask, you know, whether or not I thought, I just thought it was just a matter of time when it was going to happen for him because of the fundamental base that he had. So, you know, Zion, I think, is a, an impressive athlete. Um, I think he plays the game the right way. I think he's a strong kid. Clearly, athletically, he's going to pose some problems up here. The difference is college basketball is a totally different game than professional basketball. So all of us so-called experts and people, no one knows how that's going to translate up here because college basketball is a totally different game than professional basketball. Yep. And no matter how big he is and how strong he is at the college game, none of us know, myself included, how he's going to respond to playing 30, 35 games or so in college, to playing 82, possibly 100 games or more, and he's still a young kid. He still he looks impressive, but he's still, what, 19, 20 at the most, and that's a, that's a huge transition for any young man to just go out here and play. He's still learning his body. He's still growing into his body. He's still learning what he can and can't do, and then the game is going to change on him. So... But he looks very impressive physically. But this game right here is more than a physical game, this professional basketball. You know, there's a huge transition. So I think four or five years from now, we'll be able to answer that question and to be fair to him. But saying he's going to be the number one pick as we, as we knew it is not really the number one pick. What you're looking for now is a player that can actually come in and contribute in a way where you can allow him to be what he is, which is an athlete, because they don't have any experience anymore. And that is the fair 
that is the fair transition for an organization now is which player do you think can actually transition the fastest to playing the game because it's going to take probably four or five years, which no one will admit before they actually can deliver. You know, this kid, Luka Doncic, has an unfair advantage. The kid has been a professional since he's been about 13 or 14 years of age. Great comp. That's the difference between that's the difference between Doncic and how they do it over in Europe and the kids that we have that are coming through the collegiate system and the G League. Those kids over there are professionals. So if you look at if you look at the European players or the player the international players, whether it's Joel Embiid, whether it's uh, Adetapunko, Doncic, uh, Nurkic, Jokic, all of these players, for the most part, have played professionally somewhere before they got here. And many of them for years prior to entering into the draft, which gives them an unfair advantage. Now, the basketball may not be as high or the level of talent may not be uh, the tel- talent that they'll see in the NBA, but being a professional and understanding what it takes to have a job is, is they're doing that at a much earlier age, which to me gives them an advantage. And I think that's why you see the influx of European players and you're seeing this kid Doncic off the court. He is great because he's been used to this lifestyle since he's been like 14 years of age, 13, 14 years old. So for him, this lifestyle is nothing new. And now it's just getting adjusted to the talent and the kid has made a seamless transition this year, and, and, and now you're seeing the results of what that can do when you have a player that's playing as a professional as compared to playing here and trying to figure out, you know, how you're going to transition to the next level. You hit it right on the head. The, the, uh, the professional training, the education of becoming a pro are in completely different places uh, domestically and internationally. Ironically, the NBA draft is six months from today while we're, while we're recording this, uh, we're going to have a lot to talk about with draft prospects, talents, and of course international talents in the months ahead. We're going to take a break. When we get back, some brilliant scheduling by the NBA in the off week before the Super Bowl. And of course, we'll be pivoting to some 90s. We'll be back in a moment. Time for a word from Pure Hoops Media. The Pure Hoops podcast with myself and BJ is just one of our three weekly shows. Make sure to check out Catch and Shoot with Noah Kozlov and Adam Stanko and The Wise-Ass Show with legendary hoop scribe Mike Wise. Adam and Noah had our own BJ Armstrong on this week and Hall of Famer Rick Barry on their very first show. And yes, Rick did have some snarky pick-and-roll commentary. Check out Catch and Shoot right after you finish the Pure Hoops podcast with BJ and I. And check out The Wise-Ass Show with Mike Wise. Please subscribe, rate us, and come back often. And welcome back to the Pure Hoops Podcast. I'm your co-host, Eric Newman, along with BJ Armstrong. And uh, we're getting ready to dig into something that I'm really excited about. And the NBA schedule makers always do a fantastic job of giving us something very special the Saturday night of the off week between the NFC and AFC Championship Games and the Super Bowl. Fellas, what do you see in your crystal ball? So, BJ, Saturday night, we've got the Warriors at the Celtics. DeMarcus Cousins is back in the lineup. The Celtics are healthy and seem to have a little bit of a rhythm going right now. I know it's late January, 
but this game feels like it's got some juice to it. What are you feeling for Saturday night in Boston, Warriors, Celtics, prime time, ABC? Oh, wow. Look, Well, that, that's, that's a big game. And uh, it's a big game. I think it's a bigger game for the Celtics more than the Warriors. The Celtics are still trying to figure out how to play consistent, consistently at the level that they've all come to expect. Uh, I think we, we in the media have all expected more. I think they expect more. And they're trying to figure it out. And they're trying to figure out how to play at that highest level. Uh, it's, it's not certainly not for a lack of talent, experience based on what they achieved last year. And then they're getting the, you know two of their key guys back. So I think it will be a big game that the Celtics will have an opportunity to measure themselves, to see where they're at, see where they are at as a group, and then go from there. But um, for the Warriors, I think it's business as usual. I don't think they're putting any more emphasis on this game. I know, and knowing them, they want to make sure that if they did, if they do see the Celtics, that the Celtics know that they they can beat them, you know, at home. But I don't see it as a as a must game for them or a game they're pointing to. But I think this will be a very big game for the Celtics, and I'm I'm interested to see because I think the Celtics' advantage in this game will be the bench uh, to be their depth. And I'm really interested interested to see how the Celtics try to attack them. And, uh, you know, Boogie, you know, if you had a chance to see him over the weekend in Los Angeles, he was great. I mean, I was so happy for him. The, yep. the effort and energy that he used when he came out and played uh, was, was great. Um, and he really did a great job of passing the ball and sharing and fitting right in. But I, I think eh, going back to your question, I think the Celtics, this is a this is a big game for Boston, and I think this will this will be a good game, a great game for them if they can win this game, and I think it will say a lot about their team and the, and how they can finish up the rest of the season. It's definitely a measuring stick game. We've seen some really really high level Celtics Warriors regular season games the last couple of seasons. You hit it on the head with the depth comment and. You know, after all of the ups and downs they've gone through, they're only four behind the Raptors in the loss column. The thing that I want to see is I want to see that Celtic grit on Saturday night. It, a lot of that, as you said, has to do with the bench, the depth, challenging Golden State defensively. And let's be honest, the way Danny Ainge has constructed this roster with talent, with this wing versatility, and, of course, Kyrie Irving as the floor general, they're designed to try to take down the Warriors in the NBA Finals. And this is the first time in quite a few weeks that the Celtics have had uh, everybody healthy, whether it's Al Horford off the minutes restriction, whether it's uh, Jalen Brown who's been in and out of the lineup who has finally found a rhythm. Aaron Baines is back in the lineup who's going to be key to body up with DeMarcus Cousins. Uh, I'm looking forward to a, a really exciting game on Saturday night. And, and to build on your point on Boogie, two things I saw that were just super impressive from him, one was an effort thing and the other was a rhythm and comfort thing. He is running rim to rim offensively and defensively like he's playing for a job right now and the timing of his return in doing so is really interesting because a lot of NBA big men at this point in the season they're just trying to get to all-star break so they can take a deep breath and he's coming in fresh and the other thing I saw 
is he's already comfortable playing that handoff game with Clay and Steph. And he had a beautiful exchange with Clay the other night that got him an easy three in the left corner just off of a simple uh, handoff exchange. And it looked like they'd been doing it for, for months already. So those little things from Boogie and the Warriors already are, are, are a real good sign for them. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And, you know, I, I made a comment to uh, Bob Myers at the game. I said, I'm going to start keeping track of how many high fives Boogie is giving his teammates. I've never seen him give as many high fives as I've seen him over the last two games. And, you know, he, he, he just, he's just playing the game with a level of joy. And, and, and that's really important. You know, watching him over the years, you never question whether he had the talent. It was just all the other things, and when I mean other things, was playing the game with the the the, the passion and love uh, because he's so talented. I mean, this kid is he's a gifted player, and uh, to watch how he's exchanging and his interaction, and you know, I love I love it when Draymond Green is trying to calm him down after he he questions a call by the referees. I I mean, that just it just. And I was teasing Draymond after the game. I was like, isn't that, you know, you, I want to see how you guys calm each other down. And uh, so it, it, it's fun. And, you know, one of, one of the, 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 you know, if you had a chance to watch the game, his first game back, I just thought it was a great job by the coaching staff of the, of the Warriors. The very first play of the game, the first two or three plays of the game, they just went straight to Boogie yep. right on the post. And think about that. I mean, that's nothing new, right, in the NBA. But think about it. They're actually utilizing him in the post, <laughs> right? Yeah. We I mean, watch the one the thing Rockets they've play, never had consistently, the post yeah. presence. And now yeah. they're going right to and him. And then all of a sudden, you know, he's playing with all of these four other All-Stars. And then the very first time he comes down the floor, they throw it right to him in the post. And I just thought that was a great uh, sequence by Coach Kerr and the rest of the guys because they know – his value and what he could bring to their team. He could give them a low post threat. And uh, there aren't many, if any, can hold him down there on that box when he gets to wiggling around down there. He's, he's such a low to guard. So I just think uh, the Warriors have done a great job of trying to integrate him as quickly as they can into the system. And I'm just so happy for him to see how he is accepting this. And he's just playing the game with a joy that I haven't seen in his career. And, uh, and this could be... You know, if they get clicking, I mean, this could be really, really scary for the rest of the league. Yep, and uh, you being out in L.A., obviously that was a tremendous sports story from last week. I was lucky enough to be there as well. And uh, another tremendous sports story last week, despite some uh, referee involvement, was the Los Angeles Rams advancing to the Super Bowl. And somehow, some way, Tom Brady does it again with the Patriots. And all of a sudden... We've got another Boston-LA matchup, and yes, you know, we, we, do. we saw it in the World Series. Obviously, this began with uh, the Celtics and the Lakers back in the day. Um, when you think beat LA, when you think Boston-Los Angeles, um, where does that take your mind back to, and what was your first taste of that rivalry as a young ball player and a fan? Well, that... that immediately takes me back to my youth when I remember the Celtics and the Lakers. I mean, that was just, that was the ultimate rivalry for me growing up in the, in the eighties. I mean, you had 
Boston versus Los Angeles. You had a, a contradiction of styles, Larry Bird, Magic Johnson. Uh, you had major cities. Um, it was just a great, great, you know, that just takes me back to my youth. So to in watching Brady, look, you know, uh, Tom Brady is one of the great competitors I've seen. And what he's been able to do and achieve and his contribution to winning, uh, which I will always hold at the highest level, I mean, he just wins. He figures it out. I don't know what he does. I don't know how you measure it. I don't think analytics can measure a man's heart. And that man plays the game with his heart and soul, and he lays it out there on the line. Um, and that's what he does. And you can see he's locked into the game. And as long as there's minutes on the clock, you know, he's going to figure it out. You know, I, I like to say the great ones always play the game at a level that the most of us don't. The, most of us are playing the game trying to play by the score. Yep. Those guys at that level, they play as if the score is always 0-0. Zero, zero. I don't – if Tom Brady was up by 20, he's still focused. If he's down by 20, he's still focused. He's down by one, he's still focused. He's playing the game as if it's 0-0, zero, zero, and that's what Jordan and – Knew you were going there. I knew you were going there. Those guys. Those guys always play at 0-0. I mean, it's unbelievable. It was unbelievable to watch Tom in the last sequence. I mean, he's just – I mean, it's unbelievable how he can, you know, just focus in like that. So, I think it's going to be a great – the Rams had a phenomenal year. Um, You know, Marcus Peters is one of the guys we work with here. So, we're – you know, we we get a chance to, you know – we have clients uh, in the game, but more importantly, I think the the city of Los Angeles they're getting they're getting behind they are behind the Rams, and I think it's going to be a great Super Bowl and and um, you know I think it'll be uh, one that we'll all be tuned in tuned into because I think it's going to be by two two great teams and we'll see who wins it. It's got the makings of a great game. Uh, obviously, the Rams head coach Sean McVay is. You know, he, he's this touted offensive genius going against the all-time genius in Belichick. And the Rams have a lot of weapons. A lot of people I've talked to in Los Angeles, as you just alluded to, like people have gotten behind the Rams. The The, the stadium on television watching the game seems, seems electric. I, I, think, I think it's going to be a classic game. Um, so I'm going to... I'm going to put you, I'm not going to put you on the spot, but I am curious. Have you turned into a Los Angeles Rams football fan that that you live out there? Or are you sticking well, with your, your, your Midwest roots? Well, I, I, I'm from Detroit. So, you know, I, I'm a Detroit Lions fan. Okay. Those, those are my guys. Those are, I'm always a, a Lions fan. Um, What's interesting, my kids are, you know, who are growing up here in L.A., they are L.A. fans. Mm-hmm. So I think to keep the peace in the home, I have adopted the Rams. And uh, Probably a wise always move, tease, right? uh, Yeah, I do. And I always tease, like, like, you know, like Sue, is he's a Lions. I always ask him, does he have his Lions uh, shorts under his uh, Rams uniform, you know? Yep. And... Uh, but you know what? It, it, it's fun. It's it's like you said. It's fun to go to the Coliseum, and it really, it, it's always more fun when you're winning, right? And to know those guys and to know what those 
players are putting into it. They're putting their heart and soul into it, and that's a that's a tough sport. So, um, but I, I respect them. I've adopted them as as my second home uh, here. So, uh, you know, I, I by 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 committee and and to keep the peace in my home, I've uh, I've adopted the Rams. But my heart will always be in Detroit, my Lions, and I'm just living for the day that my Lions can get to the Super Bowl. That's the day for us. Our day's coming soon. <laughs> so our our executive producer Bruce Bernstein, of course, with his New England roots, is uh, is not happy with your new Rams affiliation. Um, <laughs> y- you and I are both tortured NFL souls, as you with the Lions <laughs> and myself, somehow growing up in New York, a Cleveland Browns fan. Um, oh wow! We love we love pain, but we can save that for another time. Yes, we've got another. We've got another L.A. topic to get to as we go back to the 90s. Back to the 90s we go. So, BJ, last show, we talked a lot about what it was like to get to the top of that championship mountain when you joined the Bulls and in your second season, uh, you guys were, were on the way and ended up winning a championship, but we didn't dig into some of the particulars. So... That 1991 playoff run, you know, most well known for the Bulls, of course, finally uh, taking down the Pistons and, of course, the Pistons' controversial exit to the court, which we'll talk about another time. But people forget that the Magic Johnson Lakers were there waiting for you, and the Lakers, who had won the title in 88 against Detroit, Lost in 89 as they had some injuries, but Detroit probably was ready to take the title from them anyway. And then in uh, 1990, the Blazers go to the finals, and Magic comes back with the Lakers in 91, and they take down Portland, the Bulls take down Detroit, and you guys, on your way to your first championship, you're against Magic and Worthy and Byron Scott, what was it like knowing that you were trying to take the torch from those guys and uh, get to the top of the mountaintop for the first one? Well, the thing I remember most was we knew that the Detroit Pistons weren't going to lay down and give us the game. If we were going to win that game, we were going to have to go over there and win it and take it. So that was the mindset. And... You know, unlike today, there was a lot of psychological warfare going on. The the Pistons were a great group. They were a very prideful group, and they knew how to win games because they didn't depend on their offense to win games. They were a defensive-oriented team. They were defensive-minded. Their mindset was, if we're going to stop you, we're going to be able to – we're going to break you mentally, and then we're going to grind this game out. And we knew that we were going to have to, if we were going to dethrone them, if you will, we were going to have to take on that same mindset and be able to meet the energy that was necessary to defeat this team. Because this team was well coached under the late Chuck Daly. Um, we were a young group. We didn't have the experience, nor did we were battle-tested like them. But we knew that we had a, a system in place, and that system wasn't, our, our offense, or we had this young, great player, Michael Jordan, we knew defensively we were a really, really good team. 
you know, and that was led by Scotty and, and Michael and Horace Grant. We knew we could defend on the interior with Bill Cartwright. And we had the flexibility to defend and do a lot of things on the court, which could keep us in ball games. So uh, we were up for the challenge and we were able to really take their best punch on the defensive end. And offensively, we weren't concerned on whether or not we can score enough points. We were concerned, could we get enough stops? You know, and that was probably the mindset of the game back then as compared to now, was we were more concerned about could we stop them three, four consecutive times in a row. And once we knew that, that would shorten their bench because they had some scores coming off their bench, you know, whether it was Vinnie Johnson or, you know, Sally or Buddha Edwards or whom have you, whom have you uh, we wanted to be able to stop this team, force those guys to play extended minutes and really wear them down because we knew the longer the series went in, because we were younger at the time, the better that we would be. And uh, we were very fortunate that we won, I think, 4-0 yep. in that series and uh, really move on and, and win a championship, our first championship that year as well. As a 13-year-old as a kid, I was, I was holding on to my big three Celtics. It was the last grasp. And I, <laughs> I really thought they had a shot to get to the Bulls as it was the Chuck Person-Larry Bird duel in the first round, and then the Pistons waiting there in the, in the second round, and, and Bird, as you remember, was just running on fumes, as was, as was Kevin McHale and Robert Parrish, but Reggie Lewis was really emerging, and the Celtics were actually up 2-1 oh, in that yeah. series. And um, they ran out of gas. They lost a heartbreaking game six um, on a... Uh, on what I must say, and this is, I think this is the first time on our show I'm going to curse. Um, they, they lost a heartbreaking game six to Detroit in game six in Detroit in overtime on a bullshit offensive goaltending call on Kevin McHale that could have put that series in seven games. And Brucey, buddy, I don't know why you're. T- t- uh, messaging me about 1990 and losing to the Knicks. That's 1990. We're talking 91 here. Same year as the Bulls and the Lakers going to the finals. And, BJ, that loss haunted me because I wanted the Celtics to play the Bulls one time. Um, But the thing I want to ask you about, last thing on this topic, I'll never forget when you guys lost game one at home on that Sam Perkins three off of the magic kickout. And he made that huge shot. What was it like going back to the locker room in Chicago Stadium, losing game one in the finals to Magic Johnson and the Lakers, and trying to pivot off of that? Because this is your first finals experience. I'm curious if you remember what that vibe was. Yeah, I, I, I do. Um, it was our first time in the finals, and it was a clearly a different atmosphere. And there was a lot of... It was like a circus atmosphere because you had Magic Johnson, who at the time had five championships. You had Michael Jordan, his first NBA final. So there was there was a lot of energy in the building. And for some reason, I can recall the pregame speech where the coaching staff, Phil Jackson, just asked us as a unit to focus in on all of the technical things in this game. And... 
he said, if you're going to lose a game, this is the game that you're going to lose. And the reason being is because, first, you guys have never been here. Second, we don't know what they're going to do. And this is like a fill-out game. It's like, out of respect, you have to understand that this team is a really good team. And they're going to come out and give you their best shot because they've been there before. James Worthy and Byron Scott and, and all those guys have been there before. And if we were going to lose a game, this was probably going to be it because of, you know, we were going to be nervous, which was expected. We were going to make some mistakes because of our youth, which was expected. Uh, but the thing he said was, I want you all to focus in on the fundamentals of the game so that you can know that how to make the necessary adjustments to win the rest of the games that's necessary. And that just took a lot of pressure off of all of us. And I remember after we lost the game, everyone came in and was like, oh, okay, I get it. And we knew exactly what we had to do, technically speaking, of what we needed to do to win the rest of the series. So that we weren't discouraged. We knew the mistakes we made. We knew the adjustments that we had to make individually and collectively as a group. And we just focused in on the fundamentals of the game, all the technical things. We could have done a better job of, of forcing Magic Johnson to make a bounce pass instead of an overhead pass. Mm. So one of the adjustments I remember we made was we took Michael Jordan off of Magic Johnson and we put Scottie Pippen on Magic Johnson. Yep. And the reason we did that was because we wanted Magic Johnson to throw bounce passes. Now, that seems like a very little thing to people, but that allowed us to get into the proper rotation because a bounce pass is a slower pass than an overhead pass. Uh -huh. And that little adjustment was like a massive thing for us yep. because Magic Johnson is such an incredible passer that if we could slow the game down by just forcing him to make a bounce pass gave us the opportunity to run around and get in rotation and do the things – and those were the things that we focused in on. We didn't worry about so much the score because we knew if we did the other things that we would have an opportunity to play and win the game. And I think we, yeah, we, I think we won the next four games. Yep. You uh, four, just by focusing in on the fundamentals of the game. And th those were little things like that. And I just remember that. And that really calmed us down as a group, but allowed us to say, you know what, in the end, fundamentally speaking, we have to be prepared to play every possession at a high level, and uh, we were able to do that. Yeah, that's great insight. I, I'm, I'm picturing those Magic Johnson over overhead laser beams at six foot nine. Oh yeah, I, I, I mean, if you if you let Magic pick you, I mean, the one thing about Magic is he he'll pick you apart because he can see over the top. You know, he was six nine, so you know, you know, even though Michael was six six, he could still pass over the top. Yep. Uh, just making him make a bounce pass to the post allowed us to double team Sam Perkins and Vladdy Divac. And that's, I mean, it doesn't sound like much, but it was like one of the things, it was like great. I remember we were all so excited because Magic was throwing bounce passes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the little things. And that was like, it was like, if we could just get Magic Johnson to throw a bounce pass, it would slow the game down. And Scotty was just big enough to make him do it. And we knew then that we could play defense at a much higher level because the passes weren't getting there as fast. Yep. yep. And that was, it was like little things like that. So, uh, you know, you know, that when you, when you're out there playing, I think you just kind of focus in on the job at hand, the task at hand. And that was 
one of the things that we did to, to calm our nerves. Awesome. 1991 NBA Finals, the first championship for B.J. Armstrong and the first of the first three-peat for the Bulls in the early 90s. Now stick the landing. Terrific show, my friend. Uh, This episode flew by, covered a lot of great stuff. Uh, I will be texting you Celtics Warriors analysis over the weekend, so make sure you get that Eric Newman alert on your cell phone. And uh, really enjoyed it today, though I am looking forward to being back uh, at your studio setup the next time in L.A. But uh, good stuff today, my man. Thank you. All right. want to thank the crew. Uh, ter- terrific job by our Pure Hoops crew. We will be back every Friday with the Pure Hoops podcast. Enjoy it. Share it. Subscribe. We'll see you soon. credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. 